so I'm wondering if you could just sing this with me because some of you know this and if the rest of you can pick it up really quickly if you don't know it. But let's just sing the doxology in, in, in response to that. Will you join me? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him above, there's here below. Praise Him above, you heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You know that a little better than I do, I think. Pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, you who emptied yourself to come among us, live an obedient life, faithful to God, right up to the point of dying, and in your death, redeeming us, forgiving us, defeating the powers of evil and rising to new life to pour out your spirit upon us. You, Lord Jesus, come among us now so that we might know you and live for you. In your name we pray. Amen. So my name is Chris DeVos, and I'm a friend of Pastor Michael's. I've been a part of the Ritter Church Renewal process um, from the beginning with uh, Pastor Michael, the first group of churches that went through that. I've been involved in faith walking um, communities and presentations. I'm facilitating a 201 group right now, if you know what that is. Um, and uh, Michael called me and asked me to, to preach for him while he's on his sabbatical. I'm delighted to do that. I was a pastor in Holland for uh, from up until about 2015 when I started working at Western Seminary. And then a year ago, I started working at uh, an organization called the Colossian Forum in Grand Rapids. And our mission is to help the church turn conflict into an opportunity for spiritual formation and witness. So that's what I'm doing right now. And that's led to me driving between Holland and Grand Rapids every day to work, commuting, about 35 minutes. And the week after Easter, I was coming into town and... Uh, there's one of these billboards just before Market Street that is electronic, and you've probably seen these. The messages can change. Instead of having to paint, you know, slather them on like wallpaper, now they can just program them to say different things and hopefully, well, probably make more money off from that. But I was coming in, and to my great surprise, the message on it was, He is risen um, right after Easter, which is, wow, I'm surprised to see some reference to Easter. And I was kind of pondering that and shocked about that a little bit. And all of a sudden, the message changed. And, and, and it went from, he is risen, to check out our new buffet at the Gun Lake Casino. <laughs> Within seconds, the attention moved on from the resurrection to some new menu at a casino. And I thought, you know, that, that's, that's so typical of, of what we do today. Our attention shifts so quickly from one thing to the next. It's so easy to be distracted and pulled in all different directions by our appetites. So I want to slow things down with you a little bit this morning 
and dwell with you a little bit in a story in the Gospel of Luke. And my understanding is that after this, we're going to be coming to the table to celebrate communion together in circles up in the front. And then we'll receive the blessing and spill out into the foyer and have a little bit of a meeting. But then eventually you'll be eating a better meal, a bigger meal, together as a fundraiser to send the youth group off on a mission trip. So that that little movement is perfect for this sermon. Um, and I want to ask you to do something a minute um, that normally when you hear preachers do this, you ought to really hear a, a warning signal when they tell you to do this. But I'm going to tell you to close your Bibles and listen to this story. And then I promise you we'll open them back up and look at a few places in this story. And it's not Luke 46, as the bulletin says. There's been a miraculous multiplication of the chapters of the Gospel of Luke in the bulletin. But we'll come back to that in a minute. But just listen to this story, this Easter story, about two disciples of Jesus as they head away from um, the city of Jerusalem. That same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And as they were walking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what were you discussing with each other as you were walking along? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas said, are you the only stranger here who does not know the things that have taken place here in these days? And Jesus said, what things? And they said, the things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now three days since these things took place. Moreover, some of the women who were with us astounded us. They went to the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they returned to tell us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some who were with us went to the tomb and found things, just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And Jesus said, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And as they drew near the city to which they were going, Jesus went ahead as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. The evening is here. The day is now nearly over. 
And so he went in to stay with them. And when they were at the table, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and while he was opening the scriptures to us? And at once they got up and returned to Jerusalem and told the eleven and the others what had happened. And they found them saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told them what had happened to them on the road and how Jesus had made known himself when he opened the scriptures. And while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And they were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Jesus said, Why are you frightened? Why do dark doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. Touch me and see for a Ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while in their joy they were disbelieving and wondering, he said to them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. But look, I am sending upon you what the Father has promised. So wait in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And when he had blessed them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And they returned with great joy to Jerusalem and were continually in the temple worshiping God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From Luke 24, not 46, verses 13 to the end. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that just a powerful story? of two of Jesus' disciples, two of the broader circle of Jesus' disciples, only one of them named, heading from Jerusalem back home after the crucifixion, not knowing yet that Jesus had risen from the dead. This story is a profound story of discipleship and of the power of Jesus to pull us into the story that of God's redemption of the whole world. And I want to point out two main things 
about this story before we wind up here at the table together. Two main things, although the first one really has two parts, so I guess there are three things. The first is that this story, this story in Luke 24, really begins in deep disappointment. That same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, says Luke. They're heading away from Jerusalem, where all the events of Jesus' crucifixion, his trial and crucifixion had happened. They're going home. Emmaus is their their home, their place where they're going for security, for some stability in life, for the routines of life. Some of the other disciples we know went back home and started working, starting fishing again, we find out in the Gospel of John. They head home in this journey of disappointment. And right away, even when we hear these words, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, we think of, don't we, of all the journeys that there are in the Bible, people moving from one place to the other. There's so many, so many stories in the scriptures. There's the stories of of Adam and Eve hiding from God and then being sent out and walking east of the gate, from the gate of the Garden of Eden. Of Noah moving into a boat and floating for for a long time before he is allowed to land on, on the land. Of Abraham going out of the Ur of the Chaldees into a land he he knew not, trusting God to lead him to a place where he would be a blessing and his his, uh, ancestors would multiply. Joseph is kidnapped into Egypt and Moses comes out of Egypt and leads the people into the promised land. Israel goes back into exile and and is trapped in exiles for hundreds of years before they are allowed to come back. And even the story of Jesus' birth is full of journeys where Elizabeth and Joseph has to flee Herod and run to Egypt and back and wind up in Nazareth. Even after Jesus' life in the book of Acts, as the church begins to grow, it moves from Jerusalem into all the places. We track the journeys of Paul as he proclaims and bears witness to the gospel. This theme of journey is a powerful one. If nothing else, we should say of faith that it is a journey. Faith is our trust in God as we journey, as we move. And in a way, that ought to to remind us that faith isn't something that's static that once you get it, it's the same the rest of your life. Faith has its ups and downs, has its challenges, has its moments, and even has its moments when we stand still, looking sad, as Luke describes these two disciples who confront Jesus, and Jesus asks them a simple question. All of these stories of journey are interesting because we know They ring true to our lives, don't we? Faith is a journey. Faith is a journey. We make our way through life, and each of us has our own story that we 
begin to accumulate intel. Sometimes we do that intentionally when we write things down in a journal, but lots of times we're simply having this ongoing discussion in our heads about our story and who we are and who God is as we journey through life. We want to make sense of our stories. We want our stories to have meaning, don't we? We want them to mean something in this world and have an impact on the greater story of history. I know talking to Pastor Michael that you as a church want the story of your church to intersect with the story of Midland County and of what happens around this community. We want to make a difference. And the first observation I want to make about our stories is that Jesus is not afraid to draw out our disappointments. Did you catch that deep reference to disappointment? One I've already said, they stood still looking sad. Actually, it's in response to Jesus' question, what things have happened? What are you talking about as you walk along? What's the story that's spinning around in your mind? It's an innocent question, and it stops them in their tracks. And as they unfold that story to Jesus and tell their story to him, well, it's about Jesus of Nazareth, who is this mighty prophet doing deeds and words, mighty deeds and words. And, and our chief priests and Leaders handed him over and condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. There it is in its most powerful statement. Verse 21. We had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And beside all that, it's now the third day. So the dream is over. The dream is dead. They stand still looking sad. They'd hoped he was the one to rescue Israel out of the clutches of the Romans, to redeem Israel back to its glory and its power. But he had died this insulting, cursed form of death, crucifixion. In their telling of the story of Jesus, they're revealing that there's been a story in Israel about how God was going to come back and save the world that they had placed their hopes in, and Jesus had let them down. Have you ever been disappointed deeply with God? Disappointed with how you thought? Life should work out if God were just and true and loving. Have you had those moments in your life where you've thought, I just don't get it anymore? Have you understood that kind of disappointment in your life? Because one of the things this story says to you, if you have, is that that's okay. I think Jesus even invites us to bring that out. <laughs> Where have we been disappointed? Where have we 
come across moments in life where we realize we've had dreams that just have not worked out. I'm convinced that this is a common theme in our stories. As a pastor, over and over again, I've sat with people who have told me stories of their disappointment with a job, with a spouse, with a family member, with their church, with me as a pastor. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel is kind of a theme statement about how we can tie our hopes up in our idea of how God is to work in this world. How God is to make all things new. Disappointment is common because we all hope. We're created to hope and dream and long for things, for wholeness and beauty, yet the world we live in is broken. It's prone to surprise us with surprising suffering and brokenness and unexpected evil. But the good news is that this disappointment is not the last word. It's not the final story. It's not the ending. And actually, our relational and spiritual vitality depends on us being able to tell our stories of disappointment and let Jesus tell his story into ours. The second point I want to make about this story is that this story exposes something about Jesus' disciples that maybe we need to recognize is going to be true of us. And that is that the disciples of Jesus actually can't get the story uh, of Jesus' life and what Jesus is doing. They can't see him. There's something about them that keeps them from seeing Jesus. Did you catch how many times Luke points out that the disciples are unable to recognize Jesus and what God is doing? Verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It doesn't say why. It doesn't say that um, that that somebody, some, some evil force was keeping them from seeing, seeing Jesus. It just tells us their eyes were kept from recognizing and understanding who Jesus was. And when Jesus talks with them for a little while, he says this phrase to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart you are to believe. Now, the word foolish that Jesus uses there actually isn't the typical word for foolish, um, like a, like a mean-spirited word. What Jesus really says is how, how unknowing you are, how unable to know, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. It's like Jesus says, how, how, how unknowing and slow you are to get the whole thing. That's a pretty big statement Jesus <laughs> hits them with. I, I wonder as I continue to go over this story in my mind, why the disciples just didn't walk away from Jesus. I mean, if someone said that to you, would you kind of invite him in? How stupid you are, the slow of heart you are to believe. Well, well thank you very much. Um, hope you get to where you're going tonight. I'll just duck here in my house and you go your way. But, there's, but what Jesus is really getting at is, is that 
it's right in front of them, but they don't see it. And there's something going on in them that that is just, it's not unusual, it's typical for human beings. We can't see what God is doing. Sometimes at the most important and most powerful moments. We're slow of heart. We're foolish in that bigger picture sense. Now maybe you want to say, well, come on. The disciples, I mean, resurrection was an unusual thing, right? Isn't that the normal thing? Who would expect someone who had died to rise from the dead? So let's give them a break. Okay. But then couldn't we say these are the people that spent three years with Jesus? He said over and over again that this is going to happen. It's recorded several times in Luke before this. I'm going to be... I'm going to suffer in Jerusalem. They're going to put me to death, and I'm going to rise again from the dead. He told them this over and over again. And they were with him three days. Wouldn't they recognize him on the road? But the bottom line is that if Jesus did spend three years with them, and if Jesus did tell them over and over again what was going to happen, if Jesus did show them over and again what the kingdom was like, over and over again. And they don't recognize him. Why would we expect to be able to pick out what God's doing so much easier than they? I think that's a really good question. And it's one, thankfully, that a lot of our theologians have thought about. Some of the best theologians in the Reformed tradition have said things like this. Who can glory in his own understanding? Who can glory in his own will? And when he understands that the mind of the flesh is by nature against God, who can speak of his own knowledge in view of the fact that the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God? For there's no understanding or will conforming to God's understanding and will apart from Christ's involvement and his teaching. The Heidelberg Catechism asks really harshly at one point, are we so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? And the answer is yes. Unless the Spirit of God unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. One of the wonderful things about this story, I think, is a sort of liberating ability to see ourselves in these disciples and realize that we're, we're all pretty much like these people. There's none of us, whatever education level we have, that can see what God's doing easier than another people, unless we're born of the Spirit of God. We aren't going to see it. We're just like these disciples. We've got all of the evidence before us, but we're so full of our own stories and dreams that they blind us from recognizing God unless God's Spirit works within our hearts to connect us to Jesus and what Jesus is doing in this world. Unless the Spirit of God lives in us, we're all like these disciples, stuck until that moment. And a good deal of our stubbornness comes from 
the powerful stories we tell us ourselves about how God is to work and what success looks like. N.T. Wright says about this passage of Scripture, The hope of the Messiah was alive and well in Jesus' day. The crucifixion had already for them a thoroughly theological meaning. And it meant that the exile was still at play, was still continuing, that God had not forgiven sins. That's what the crucifixion gave evidence to. God hadn't forgiven sins. For if the Messiah was crucified, he was dead. He wasn't the Messiah. And that pagans were still ruling the world. That's the story that was being told. But, and here's the final observation of this I want to make on this passage. Jesus is determined to tell a different story. The story that God has been telling all along from the beginning to the end. But that's so hard for us to hear. Jesus tells the story differently. Did you notice that in this, in this passage of Scripture? Jesus first asks them to tell the story, and they do. Well, Jesus is a mighty prophet, word and deed before God and all the people, and they put him to death. And now he's in the death. We've heard some rumors, but he's dead. And Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, tells a different story. And then, when he is invited in, he takes the bread and he blesses it, gives it to them, and he vanishes. They recognize him in that moment. Because you know what? That moment of taking the bread and blessing it and breaking it is like Jesus' signature move. He's done it two other times in the Gospel of Luke. One in the multiplication of the loaves to feed the 5,000 and another at the Last Supper. The same exact words. Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it and gave it to them. And they knew, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. And so he tells a different story the whole way through. And he writes, says, it was the entire narrative, the complete storyline, the whole world of prayer and hope that Jesus walked them through. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the bearer of God's promises for the world, that's Israel, and now Jesus, focused on the remnant as the bearers of Israel's destiny. And finally, on Israel's true king, he tells this story from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms of, of God blessing the world and he being the fulfillment. He had been that servant on whom the sins of the world had been laid. Wright thinks that moment when Luke tells us their eyes are open is like a reversal of that moment in Genesis 3, or Genesis 2, I guess it is 3, where Adam and Eve, eyes are opened and they realize that they were naked. Now the disciples' eyes are opened and they realize this new kingdom. This is the eighth meal in the Gospel of Luke, as Earl Ellis tells us. The eighth time that Jesus eats with people in the Jewish reckoning of things, that was the eighth day, the day of new creation. The number eight symbolized the new creation. Six days 
was the day, first creation, the day of rest, the seventh. They looked for the new creation to happen on the eighth day. And here's the eighth meal, the disciples meeting with Jesus, and their eyes are open, and they recognize him. Jesus is made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Friends, Acts 2 tells us that when the Holy Spirit is poured out on that church in the, God, in the city of Jerusalem, and they are filled with the Spirit, and the church explodes. They dedicate themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the prayers, to the breaking of the bread, and to the fellowship. So as we gather at this table, we come to be nourished in our faith, to have our eyes opened in this mysterious way through a sacrament to see, again, Jesus in our lives, to take Jesus in to help transform our stories of disappointment into stories of God's grace, forgiveness, and new life. I want to tell you one story just before we come to the table together of a man who started coming to our church a couple of years ago. And we started doing two worship services, an earlier service, and then uh, one at one at 9 o'clock and one at 10.30, and our services were growing, and this elderly gentleman would come and sit in the back of the sanctuary and um, for several weeks, and finally I got to meet him, and I said, well, let's have coffee or breakfast. And he said, yeah, I'd like to do that, and he sat down at a little place in Holland, Michigan, and he told me the story of his life. He had, he had started this business, graduated from high school, and started a business that became very successful. And it took over his life. And um, and what else happened in his life is he started drinking a lot. And he kept staying later and later and drinking more and more. And finally his wife had had it and left and he was divorced. And up until that point he had been regular attender of church, but he was full of shame about this divorce and he started, stopped coming to church. And 20 years or so had gone since he started coming back to church and just started sitting in the back of the sanctuary. And um, he said to me, you know, I just realized I needed to be in God's presence. I needed to renew my relationship with God, and God was at work in my life to see things going on in my life. And um, I remember the next week I saw him, and we would come up to the front, and just much as we're going to do in a few minutes and celebrate communion together. And I saw him shuffling up to the front and, and thought of how powerful that scene was of one of God's children coming up to the table and taking this piece of bread and dipping it in the cup and taking it in. It's, it's a strange, small thing that we do when we come up here. But it's a huge and powerful thing at which we really trust God connects us with Jesus and all his benefits. And so as we come to this table, I urge you to come with an open heart and an open mind. Because at this table, we meet Jesus. Jesus who will tell a new story to all of us by his Spirit.
So I invite you to pray with me this prayer that is in your um, bulletins called the Great Prayer of Thanksgiving. Would you please join me as we do that? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Holy and right it is in our joyful duty to give thanks to you, O Lord, our Creator. For you have given, you created heaven with all its hosts and the earth with all its bounty. You have given us life and being, and you preserve us by your providence. But you have shown us the fullness of your love by sending into the world your Son, Jesus Christ, 